go forward that often. And whenever I go forward, I, it's in, if it's in the daytime right now, normally that's fine. And of course, we've had a time change here. You just had one. So I had, I knocked it down to, to 10 hours instead of 11. And uh, if it's at night, if I had to call you at nine at night, my time, you know, that really screws me up the, the next day because, we'll, we, you know, you're in the future, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Always one step ahead. You guys can tell us what's going on, what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> uh, well, I can tell there. you absolute certainty is that nighttime will descend at some point. <laughs> Beyond that, you know. <laughs> okay. That's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, deep prediction, I think. We we first spoke, didn't we? Um, two three years ago, perhaps. Yeah, Chris North Turner. And, and, uh, it was our mutual mm. friend, and he introduced us. And and uh, yeah, I've had you on my show, and and uh, you and Chris had been out there in the wilds of of the UK mm. uh, doing field field work. Great stuff, by yeah. the way. Oh, you, oh, you know what? You. Uh, we have a channel here called. Um, called Tubi, T-U-B-I, which is a very good ah, channel. Okay. Lots of documentaries on it. And I came across uh, the elusive one. I'm pretty sure I came across and I saved yep. it. Yeah. And uh, they, also the reptilian one that uh, I, I was part of, uh, it's on there as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely making the rounds. <clears throat> and as far as this interview, whatever you want to talk about is fine. Um, I probably can only stay on for an hour. Then I got to finish up doing something else. And then I got to hit the sack because I got to go to work in the morning. Oh no, that's but, fine. Um, I mean, I, I generally yeah only have about an hour in me anyway most times. So I think that's that's short enough to keep people's interest. And we you know we're not yeah. going to drag them out for three hours in long form uh, talking about tunnels and stuff. I mean, from yeah. my perspective, uh, I'm into sort of flesh and blood animals, but I know that there's another aspect to things like Bigfoot. To things like the little hairy people, winged flying creatures, yes, in, yes, in the things that you study that might have another philosophical perspective, um, or, or perspective on origin. So, you know, what I'd like to ask you first of all is that coming from the research that you've done and uh, and investigated, what are the the, the stories, the non, um, how can I put it, the non corporeal, the non uh, biological uh, stories or non-animalistic stories that you hear about hairy humanoids. Oh, I see. Oh, are we recording right now? Yes. Yeah, always. Yeah, okay. Just straight in. Okay. Yeah, sneak uh, out, let me just sneak pause. Up on you. Get all of the, the gossip at the beginning. No, nobody knows the, uh, the record button's on. As far as the, the non-corporeal aspect, I haven't. Well, no, I take that back. I, I had an experience several years ago now when I've told this story before, but, but it bears repeating. It was to do with this book about Leonard Peltier. He was the Native American Lakota who was set up by the feds. And as far as I know, if he's still alive, he's still languishing in a federal pr uh, prison. Uh, the The feds and Native Americans, uh, for a while, they were having this ongoing conflict uh, back and forth uh, on the reservations, Pine Ridge being one of them. And long story short, Leonard Peltier was thrown into a federal penitentiary. He's in there for life, as far as I know, because mm -hmm. I think there was a shootout that, that was um, involved uh, between Native Americans and federal agents, and I think a federal agent may have been killed, but don't quote me on that. But the point is, I had this book about Leonard Peltier, and I kept getting prompted. I kept getting some kind of unseen prompt or urge to read it, but I resisted that because I, I didn't want to read about the victimization of this Native American activists getting railroaded by the, the feds. It just wasn't my thing, right? You know what I mean? So I just kept resisting it over and over and over. Finally, I relented. And this happened, it was over a span of a few days this was going on. Finally, almost out loud, I said, okay, okay, I'll read it, right? And 
I read the opening chapter and darn near fell out of my chair because the introduction to the book wasn't so much about Leonard Peltier and mm -hmm. what had happened to him and what was going on with him. The first chapter was about what the author was experiencing, going to the various reservations, talking mm -hmm. to the to the tribal elders, and in each reservation and and in each tribe, he was being told essentially the same thing, mm -hmm. that the big hairy man was coming back, that he'd been making a number of appearances lately, and to the people, i.e. the Native Americans of various tribes, this was a portent of, of things to come. Okay. It, they interpreted it as when the hairy man comes around and starts making these appearances, he's telling us something something big is coming and mm. the way it was described to him by the native american elders uh something very very big of an ecological celestial something along those lines that kind of scale so i read that <laughs> and it knocked me over with a feather that night as i lay in bed i came to a sudden awareness that there were lack of a better term, uh, Sasquatch in the bedroom with me, albeit invisible. But I can clearly feel their presence. And there was more than one of them. And uh, it wasn't like this, well, kind of. It was kind of a large, pervasive presence, if you will, albeit they were invisible. But somehow they were able to accommodate their, their, their great size in a um but in a metaphysical sense kind of shrink mm. themselves up so they would comfortably fit into my bedroom right but i knew they were there and i knew they were very large and it was almost as if they were i wouldn't say thanking me for reading the book because i knew it was definitely connected to the book but it was almost as if they were telling me this is why it was us that was telling you to read the book mm -hmm. we wanted you to read that part particularly right and so they showed up that night they let me feel their presence and then you know i was able to go to sleep but i absolutely was 100 percent certain they were in a bedroom with me and uh another occasion this is interesting because you're asking about the the non-corporeal yeah absolutely psychic aspects if you will i had had a dream well i had dreams of sasquatch before but that's another story this one involved the so-called dog man. And I was dreaming I was in this house. And I was in the kitchen. And I was trying to familiarize myself with the, the utensils, the pots and pans. I think I was fixing to make myself breakfast or something. And then outside this window, looking out the kitchen window was sort of an alleyway. And in this alleyway was a very large, muscular, about eight, nine foot tall, what we would call dog man, except it was a particular mm. type of dog man. If you're familiar with that breed of, of canine, I think they're called, I think they're called chows, but they have oh, kind yeah. of like the black mm. mane kind of thing. Mm. Well, this was one of those types. It had a big black mane and in its hand, I think it's in its right hand, it was carrying what appeared to be an oversized key, right? Mm. Now, if you're familiar with some of the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic iconography, like Anubis, you'll recall, yeah, that there's a lot of photographs and images and reliefs of the arrows, the netters, netterets, holding like a big onk, holding a mm. staff, that kind of thing. That, that's what it reminded me of, right? But the way my mind was processing it, it wasn't so much like, okay, there's some kind of metaphorical reason for this dogman, chow type dogman standing outside this window holding this key. That's not, not what was registering. Uh, unfortunately, I hate to say it, uh, fear was, was what was <laughs> the primary thing that was registering. I don't think you right? can be blamed for that too much, James. And then what happened was, it went from me looking out this 
kitchen window into an alleyway seeing this dog. The dog man would occasionally walk to the left or right out of my field of vision. And then it went from that that vantage point, that perspective, to suddenly there was no kitchen there. There was just me and the dog man there, right? And with no nothing in between to separate us. And that increased my level of fear once again. And I, I regret it now because it, had I thought about it, I might have asked questions or you know something. It still stood there with this big oversized key in its hand. It, it paced back and forth to the left and to the right, and then the dream ended. But that's the extent of it. But but I I regret once again not becoming lucid, not recognizing that perhaps. This this entity, yeah. this being, had some kind of message for me, and and perhaps that was the reason it was holding the big key, kind of a metaphor, kind of thing. But I, I look at it as a lost opportunity. But at least it, it tried, and I think not that I'm inviting anything, mind mm. you. But were that thing to show up in my dream again, I think I would be a little bit more. I wouldn't say accommodating, but a little more, uh, a little friendlier, hopefully mm. less frightened. But off the top of my head, those are two experiences that I've had. One in normal waking consciousness when I was laying in bed and I felt the presence of the Sasquatch. And, and I really felt that they were Sasquatch. They weren't Australian Yahweh's. They were yeah. Native American Sasquatch somehow connected to Lakota. And I've had dreams and mystical yeah. experiences which, which tell me that I have some kind of Lakota connection, karmically okay. or otherwise. And then that... that Dogman story that I just related to you that that was in a very lucid dream. I mean that's that's very it's very peculiar, very strange. How did you? I mean, I'm sure everybody asks this. How did you know that they were Sasquatch? The feeling that you had in the room because they were invisible. What was it about the presence? Was it like um, uh, some people describe an unheard voice, almost like the same voice you get when you read? you know, something on a page in their mind telling them this is what this is. Not audible, but felt in the same way as the words on the page have felt. Was it that kind of confirmation that you had when this experience Yes, occurred? It, it was not an ob obtrusive presence. Uh, one would describe, say, like a the feeling or the presence of an unfriendly spirit, for example. Mm. Uh, it, was, it wasn't a feeling of anything dark or menacing. In fact, it was it was a feeling of, of comfort, of familiarity, if you will. Yeah. There was just an inner knowing, that still silent voice, but yeah. also with some gentle prodding from them that, yes, it's us, we're here. And it was just in a way to let me know of the connection with the book. Like, okay. I read the book, I did what I was finally supposed to do, and they're there at that moment to, it turns reassure me but let me know that there's some kind of connection that has to do with with the whole native american story uh earth changes and, and what have you because i definitely feel that part of part of the message especially from the book was that and I, i'm not talking about uh, you know this climate change agenda i'm talking no. about real celestially yeah. driven events uh are, are going to come to pass and probably are in the process of coming to pass as we speak. I would, um, yeah, I mean, I would, um, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Um, it's interesting actually, because when you, you said that to me, what popped into my mind was the behavior of animals just before an earthquake, you know, they come out and they give you uh, a, a signal because they're running from something they feel, but can't perceive or can't tell you about. It, and that is a signal. Now I know recently there's the old sort of animals walking around in a circle sort of fad, chasing all over the internet and i've looked at it and i think in one way so these animals could have a disease and in another way you know clickbait works in such a fashion that most things are fashioned to reflect um um what is popular online now especially on pages yeah. like tiktok and other things so i think i saw another one with bugs walking around in the circle and i thought okay well yeah i think that was got that I put views. Put yeah exactly and you know it's just um it's more plausible that it's it's manufactured to, to get the likes. Um, do you think that the greater 
I think you've inferred it there, but the greater uh, reporting of hairy humanoid-like creatures around the world at the moment is just to do with its growing popularity, you know, with the Bigfoot genre in the United States and, and over here in other places, or do you think that people are, are seeing them more? I know some Australian researchers have said to me, uh, people like Gary Open, actually, there's more Yowie around than there ever were during Aboriginal times. He attributes that to less people living on the land, actually, but could it also be something else? Well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as the crow flies, there are two places in particular that are not too far from here. I can get to either place. Uh, uh, the closer one, probably in 20, 25 minutes, and, and the further uh, place, about 40, 45 minutes. And both are reputed to be uh, locales where Yahweh's have been seen. Uh, the one that's about 40, 45 minutes away, there's even been videos on YouTube and, and other places where people have gone out there um, hiking or riding bicycles, and then you know they, they see a big hairy hominoid. Uh, as far as your question is uh, concerned, do they seem to be getting around more often? Are there more people observing them? I, I tend to agree uh, with what that individual uh, told you that uh, I'm by no means, I'm not an outdoorsman, mm. but just from uh, my intuitive feeling, Australia in particular is probably one of those countries when where you just don't have a whole lot of people living in country. Now there are a lot of people in country Queensland, country New South Wales, country in Victoria, uh, that much is true, but mm similar to america there are large mm -hmm. basically uninhabited uh, stretches where people rarely go so there is plenty of uh, room to maneuver if you will uh, you know for these creatures to uh, to get around and new south wales the state that i live is mm -hmm. quite parts of it are quite forested a lot of lush vegetation mountainous even not too far from here, uh, I was just thinking when, when my wife and I were driving through a, through a certain stretch, which is as a crow flies, not really far from here. That I'm I'm thinking to myself, this looks like Yowie country. Just just the, the vibe I was getting, the feel, the uh, that kind of thing. So, uh, and I, I do think that whether it's and by saying this, I'm not, I'm not making fun at the expense of the Yahweh's. It's just an expression that we humans have, you know, the hundredth monkey thing, that there may be a point in time, and we may have reached that point where these these hominoids, they've all come to the same realization at the same time that there really is no real compelling reason to hide themselves anymore, mm -hmm. especially here in Australia, what's happened with the so-called brush fires. We're talking yeah. about large lots of land that was just, I mean, when my wife and, and I, and our family had recently driven through these places, right, to, to go to a, a place to meet friends, a camping spot, and, and just seeing Charred trees on the yeah. side of the road. It was just, you know, from a soul perspective, quite painful. Just thinking mm. what the animals went through, right? Mm. And then knowing that there are so-called cryptids out there as well that make that their home. So, from an environmental standpoint, from uh, you know fires, what have you, floods. I'm mm. sure at some level, the these and we've experienced all that in the recent past in my part of australia and you've had i'm huge sure floods, that haven't you i mean it's uh yeah we, we've had it, floods we've had uh, yes well where we live now uh, the, the last time the rains came uh really strong uh the creek across the street in full spate pretty much turns into a river and uh, further down the street around the bend, some properties actually got flooded. Uh, wow. So we were fortunate that a, 
although you can't really tell by the naked eye, were a little higher elevation-wise. So although our garage got wet and uh, stuff like that, we weren't really uh, badly affected, although mm. our street and our neighborhood was listed as one of these places uh, th that the state regarded as a disaster area. So point being is that, you know, environmentally, we've been put through our paces here with the brush fires, with the floods, and I'm sure at some level it's impacted uh, these Yowies, and perhaps uh, it's caused some of them, for whatever reason, to make, you know, further inroads into more uh, uh, areas that are, you know, lived, lived on, yeah. you know, by humans, right? So let's see how this plays out. It would make sense, uh, James, I think, because you know, essentially, if you think of it, the U.S., if you had big uh, forest fires and lots of the the territory was burned up and the animals were gone, well, bears, for example, might start coming into the city a bit more to find food and, and things like that. And because I suppose to an animal with a great sense of smell and some intelligence, that's that's where you'd head. That's where the food smell is coming from. Let's get over there and see what they've got, you know, what the humans have on the edge of the, the towns and cities. So that would that would make perfect sense to me. Yeah, I mean it's um it's a curious time that we live in anyway, isn't it? And by uh, curious I you know, I exercise my full uh power of British understatement. <laughs> <You know? laughs> something that we would say about something that's just, you know, uh, emerging tyranny. It's curious. Um oh, strange. One of the things that you, you mentioned about Chris Turner, the director, actually, of course, he directed Elusive You and I appeared in that. He directed Don't Mention the Reptilians, and you appeared in that, is this reptilian form. So for some cryptozoologists, there's a, you know, there's a belief that um, some forms of hairy humanoids, like the Kappa, like the, um, uh, the Skapor, uh, swamp monster might be, and, and others, the uh, Lisman of, of Skateboard might be a form of living dinosaur of some kind, or if not that, um, a different form of Sasquatch, you know, something that has perhaps scalier skin, uh, is, is less hairy than other forms. But of course, in your um, field of research, these are sentient and malevolent often beings that are interacting with humanity. So so give me your perspective on that. What are these reptilians? Well, this is where the twain meets because uh, for a long time, the only real eyes that uh, we reptilian researchers had were the cryptozoologists who were coming at it from a cryptozoological point of view. Uh, you have the lizard man in Bishopville, South Carolina, similar uh, reports of, of saurian lizard-like creatures, reptilians, if you will, because in the UFO field, and particularly in the alien abduction field, the subject was treated uh, rather dismissively by by the big-name alien abduction researchers, and uh, if not outright scorn and contempt, right? They wanted to keep everything at the level of the greys, you know, the mm. ubiquitous, uh, you know, little grey beings. And they, I know for a fact that a number of the big name researchers, abduction researchers, uh, made a point of downplaying and marginalizing <laughs> the significance of reptilian abductions and reports of reptilian beings. Because uh, very often in the context of, of an alien abduction, although someone may initially be abducted, in our example, by the grades, so-called, at some point during the abduction, not all the time, but very often, at some point, they may be in a setting, either an alien base on board a craft or some, some underground installation somewhere, where the percipient, the eyewitness, perceives more than one type of ET. Well, it was just the grades that brought me here, but now I see these kinds of beings uh -huh. and I see these reptilians over here. So... Those kinds of reports were being downplayed. But on the other hand, the so we didn't really have many allies within mm -hmm. the alien abduction field or UFO field in general, only the really hardcore researchers uh, and those, interestingly enough, that had a bent towards 
the so-called hollow earth, the inner earth, uh-huh. uh, because the story of reptilians has always been tied into uh, the lore as it relates to the subterranean world, mm-hmm. the underground cavern systems, what have you. And, you know, of course, those stories go back to a- antiquity. Because then we start seeing like a marrying of the two uh, reports of an underground base where advanced research is taking place that has to do with alien or uh, extremely advanced technology. And as part of the scenery, there happen to be non-human beings there, not just human engineers, human military, mm-hmm. human scientists, but they're also in some of these facilities, probably a lot of them, there was this non-human element and oh some of them happened to be reptilian so we were getting those reports and some of these reports were coming from within the ufo field but also we were getting reports from these so-called cryptozoologists who were looking at from a from a field investigative standpoint where they would go to an area where and Chaville, south carolina is hardly unique uh, in this regard Although the stories, if you've ever been through there, they, you actually see like roadside cafes with big lizard, uh, you know, motifs in the front, which I think is pretty cool. But we've heard similar stories in Sedona and other places, which is a radically different climate and terrain. Uh, South Carolina is quite lush, quite vegetated, whereas Sedona, Arizona is canyonland, it's, it's, mm. it's desert. And uh, the stories that we've heard coming out of there is hikers, Backpackers would see in, in, in the dry creek beds and, and watches. They would just suddenly see coming across their path, uh, you know, a lizard creature, right? Oh. And, and so it, that's where the inner earth researchers and the cryptozoologists came in with their contribution. Mm. And I always give credit where credit's due, and I'm thankful that they have done that over the years. And, and that within cryptozoology they still they take the subject of reptilians very seriously which i'm personally mm-hmm. gratified that they do as far as your question of what are they they seem to be a a species that is saurian or lizard like in as far as the phylum is concerned mm-hmm. as far as what kind of uh, biological creature they are Definitely more of the lizard, soaring and snake-like. And there's there's different types of them. There's not only one kind. Uh, some are rather small, diminutive. Although I, from the reports that I get and have had over the years, some of the smaller ones can be quite spiteful and quite hostile. And, and then you have the more common reports of the very large, robust, uh, muscular chest, uh, muscular arms, uh, big thighs. Some are what we, what they used to refer to as gargoyles in the old days, mm-hmm. and we called dracos or dracs. They are the winged reptilian species. They have a, a set of wings, uh, you know, between their shoulder blades, which they can extend out, and uh, eight, nine feet tall or taller. Uh, in an astral experience in 1985, I came across, uh, the first time I came across a draco was in a lucid astral experience it was uh, brown in color glowing red eyes two little knobs on the top of its head and uh it looked quite uh, muscular and large and it's kind of a funny story because i was going through a a carlos castaneda phase at the time right reading all the books that uh, uh. carlos castaneda had written about his his uh, tutelage uh, you know, from his mentor, Don Juan Matus, right? And I was reading, uh, I was just in a part of his works where he was talking about the scream of power, right? Whatever that meant, right? So here I am in this astral experience and I see coming from my left to my right in my field of vision, everything is pretty much like a white field of vision. And then from my left to my right is this very large winged brown I just thought of it as the gargoyle back then. The, the, the term Drac or Draca wasn't even in my, my vocabulary. And because I'd just been reading the Carlos Castaneda books, I decided to give the scream of power like a go, right? So I, with all my might, and on the astral, mind you, I let out this you know almighty roar, 
the thing stops in its tracks, turns and looks at me with these big red glowing eyes. And I went from scream of power to scream of terror, right? (laughs) And I woke up back in bed. And and then the next morning, I'm, I'm sitting in all places in my college biology class. And I'm just, what the hell happened last night, right? Mm. Uh, and it was only t- much later did I make the connection. Oh, this, that must have been one of those Dracos, those Drax, and wow. somehow in the astral we cross paths, right? Uh, they do represent a society. There is a caste system. They have been known to not only enslave other beings uh, and also humans, but other reptilian uh-huh. that are not as strong as them, uh, just like you will see. Uh, black ants intermixed in a colony of red ants and mm. the black ants have been co-opted into slave labor. A uh, th- similar, uh, similar dynamic occurs uh-huh. in the reptilian scheme of things where uh, in, in the bowels of the earth, they have uh, the more predatory militant military caste reptilian species have exerted their will on, on other reptilian beings that are not as strong and not as militant and essentially enslaved them and, and co-opted them. So, I mean, I, I think I, for one, believe that the whole concept of a caste system of hierarchies, what have you, I, I think that directly came from the reptilians and, and, and the way they operate. I mean, the, um, our human caste system was, was based upon that. Yes, the human system. Yeah, oh, I is, think so. That is very, very interesting. You mentioned it, you mentioned these dracos, these gargoyles as well. That's you know that's always been a puzzler for me because in amongst the books I'm currently writing, I'm writing a seven-part series. I've done part one, that's Harry Humanoids, but one segment of the series is about is things with wings, basically thinged wingeds, and within that category is the the humanoid with wings because of, well, of course that's that's almost impossible to explain from a biological yes. animal uh, perspective for me and. I'm often in this in this position where whether it's a dog man or black sheep or something, there's a a crossover, but there's a biological, you know, there's an animal-like appearance. Yet there's something about the creature itself that is hard to to pin down. Now, what what is their purpose? You know, it, it, as far as your perspective is is concerned, or your research has shown, yes, they enslave other. Um, lower reptilians and other beings and other humans, but what is their purpose? What are they up to? What are they doing? Why do we see them? Well, I think there are essentially three types of reptilians, and they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, there are some that are, uh, they live in, in the tunnel systems beneath our feet, uh, the subterranean world, and there are others that are, for lack of a better term, uh, interdimensional or non corporeal. It's possible that in their native state, in their native environment, somewhere underground, whatever the case may be, in a place that they feel uh, safe, they may densify themselves, this interdimensional category, where they are are comfortable being in in our corporeal world, albeit underground, uh, safe from harm, if you will. So... It seems to me that the reptilians in particular, as a species, a generic reference to all the different reptilian species, species, that a good many of them have learned how to alter their density and their frequency. So they could be corporeal, dense from our 3D perspective one moment, but then non-corporeal, will-o'-the-wisp kind of thing in the Mm -hmm. next. And I've had many reports where they could be invisible in the visible spectrum, mm. but the person that they're visiting or harassing or abducting, in our example, a, a gal, this happened to a personal friend of mine, she had an etheric third eye vision, so she could see into the astral, she could see things that most people couldn't see. And whereas her husband at that time could only see a weight, a depression of weight on the mattress of the bed, mm in the visible spectrum, she could see the actual entity that was sitting on her mattress. 
again, he could only see the weight of the depression on yeah. the, the bed. She could see the actual entity. And what was interesting was this particular, because uh, she she is uh, uh, descended from Socorro uh, Indians from northern Mexico. And okay. she's, uh, as a matter of fact, ironically, that's apparently the same uh, area that uh, Don Juan, uh, Don, um, Carlos Castaneda's mentor came from uh-huh. uh, Don Juan, right? The same kind of people. And she had long, beautiful black hair. And this reptilian seemed to be the one that kept visiting her and having intercourse with her because that's, that's a big thing with these reptilians. Some okay. of intercourse with the human women. And those such stories uh, come down to us from antiquity and not just reptilians or what they've been described as incubus and what have you. Mm. And this particular reptilian was fascinated by her long black hair. And so with its long claws and its fingers, it was pulling her hair um, towards it. And with his other hand, it was Uh um, stroking it. So from the perspective of her husband, he was seeing the depression of weight on the mattress, and he was seeing her hair extend out horizontally with the undulating wave motion. Uh, Extending outwards, um, which was the reptilian doing that thing, right? So it's it's a very interesting uh, two-person perspective, Mm -hmm. and it gives an idea of their, at least some of them, their metaphysical capabilities. Mm. I mean, that that would definitely seem to ascribe something that, yeah, exactly, it's, it's it's not just a physical being. Physicality is only one of its aspects. Exactly, and they can densify particular parts of their anatomy, like like their their member, their 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 fingers, their talons, whatever the case may be. Uh, and they can open portals, step out of portals. And then there's the other reptilian type race, which is essentially the spacefaring, off-world extraterrestrial type. But it's again, it's not mutually exclusive because some of these spacefaring reptilians and other um, spacefaring beings, they've long established bases here, uh, underground, undersea. They've been here for so long, they might as well be regarded as earthlings, right? Mm. Some of these um, um, non-human societies. So essentially subterranean, interdimensional, and off-world, but they're not mutually exclusive. And some reptilians are all three at the same time. They're, they're off-world. They, they, they're from originally off-world, but they reside in an underground base, and they're, they have the ability to alter their frequency and their density. And they're, they're quite technologically orientated, at least some of them. Some of them, especially the ones that live underground, they really don't have a need for technology, but some of the underground civilizations definitely have uh, technology, high technology as an essential component of their civilization, of their okay. their scheme of things. So, we, I mean, um, we're talking about the highly intelligent uh, creatures, basically. Now, talking these reptilian things, these creatures that, that enter slightly into the world of cryptozoology and yet are really by the, the, the signs of your description, interdimensional beings. There's the hairy man or hairy little men as well, phenomena with UFOs. How, what, what do you know about that? That's always puzzled me. Is this, you know, I, I made a joke to a friend the other day when they mentioned it and said, well, perhaps uh, these UFOs who are out abducting people are just as interested in abducting the hairy men as well. Or is there, is there some well, what other connection? Well, interesting, uh, I'm... At some point, uh, one of the well-known cryptozoologists, uh, especially in, in the dogman scheme of things, has reached out to me, and uh, hopefully I'll be on his show soon, and, and hopefully he'll be on my show. But uh, he has this paranormal roundtable show, and I was listening, and he got into a discussion with some of the other people in, in his roundtable group, and the discussion centered around a story one of his correspondents from the UK had had invited him. This person, this individual, was out in the woods at night, and if memory serves, and I have to ask him about this when I do talk to him, uh, they saw a, a, a lighted craft appear over this clearing in the woods, 
And then the next thing you know, there was these reptilians on the ground. Mm. And they were, they seemed to be uh, turning like a, a big hairy hominoid. And the way it was described by the witness, it didn't look so much Sasquatch or a, a Yowie. It looked more like a dogman type of creature. Uh-huh. Uh, now, we've had many stories. I, I've had Stan Gordon on the show, one of the last mm. of the great old school uh, UFO and, and, and Bigfoot investigators. And he wrote a classic book about the UFO uh, Sasquatch connection. Mm. There was a huge wave of such sightings in, back in 74 time frame and uh you know he goes in a great length talking about all these examples of people seeing in close proximity to one another either a uh, hovering craft uh, very low uh, in in altitude or a landed craft and seeing either sasquatch alight from the craft or in very close proximity beneath the craft and uh, one, of the, one of the dreams I had in the same time frame, oddly enough, uh, 74, 75 time frame, was uh, a gleaming silver saucer had had landed on the very busy avenue in front of the house I lived at, my parents' house in San Jose, California. And there was no traffic, no cars. This thing just landed, the silver saucer. And uh, my younger brother, who features in a lot of my UFO-type dreams back in the old days, me and him were looking out this window. We're just, you know, agape, right? Here's a saucer. And then and we're looking at each other. Then we look out the window again. And now it's not just a saucer, but now there's a ramp, okay? And descending from the ramp are three large... Uh, low ochreish kind of spiky-haired Sasquatch kind of guys, right? And so even long before I knew that there was a connection between uh, the hairy, big hairy hominoids and UFOs, this was playing out in a very vivid mm. dream uh, around the same time or a little after uh, when all that stuff was going on in Pennsylvania and Ohio that Stan Gordon um, was uh, researching and investigating point being is that definitely seems to be a connection um, uh, in the paranormal roundtable discussion the eyewitness had observed a craft suddenly reptilians were on the ground they seemed to have a comatose um, dog man in okay. and they seemed to be releasing it if you will back into the wild and, and a drug animal being uh, yeah turfed out back into its forest habitat. Well, yes. And and then the, the great Puerto Rican investigator, uh, Jorge Miranda, he's got a case where uh, this guy was hiding in the, in the bushes in Puerto Rico, and he saw uh, a craft, and then coming out of the craft were these two, what has been described by some as Palladian or Nordic-looking beings. They uh-huh. I don't think they look like us. I think we look like them, actually. Uh, but they're very human in appearance, blonde-haired. Okay. And, and you probably look more like them than I do. But uh, point being is that they had some kind of mechanical, rectangular, large rectangular box. Uh-huh. In the re- re- large rectangular box was a uh, a Sasquatch, for lack of a better uh-huh. term. Now, it's either, now, don't quote me on this, it was either Jorge Martin, Martin's research or Timothy Good's research, but I think I think it's um, Jorge Martin's research that he, he came up across the story where the eyewitness saw these Palladian beings. They seemed to have a Sasquatch in some form of detainment or captivity inside a large regular mechanical-type box. So point being is just as humans have interactions with non-human alien beings, if you will, these aliens seem to have an awareness, cognizance of the hairy hominoids mm. and other types of that are on this planet. And it begs the question. And I'm not one of those people that are you know, like absolutist and thinking like it's either this or that, and there's no shade of gray, no nuance in between, right? I, I, I kind of think that there is a lot of nuance, a lot of gray areas. Yeah, sure. But we don't know until and, we know, uh, essentially. 
Yeah. And I think that um, definitely some of these hairy hominoids may have been brought here mm. uh, by some spacefaring or uh, other type civilization that has the means to come here. According to the lore of the Native Americans and other uh, First Nation peoples around the world, a lot of these so-called cryptids, including hairy hominoids, Sasquatch, if you will, have the means to not only alter their density and frequency and, and mm. do all these things that we spoke about in the metaphysical sense, but they also seem to be able to uh, appear and disappear and utilize some kind of a portal network to, to get around. Uh, there's eyewitness reports. Uh, there was a story uh, of a well-known Australian researcher. He's, he's getting pretty uh, on in, in his years now, Rex Gilroy, but he was visiting a place that we know is, is the carry-on glyphs, and I've been there many times. And uh, he was on top of the flat part, if anyone had been there, there there's a flat yeah. area on top, and, and there's this Palladian like healing table thing there. Anyway, it was somewhere near on top of this, uh, these glyphs that in, in midair, you know, several feet above the plateau, a portal opened up, Yowie stepped out of it. Rex and the Yowie looked at each other, and then the Yowie turned around, abruptly walked back into the portal, and closed up. So, so you know, and then um, who was it? It was um. That's such a slight. That's such a slight for such a cryptozoologist. Yeah. Like, no, no, thanks, mate. I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, Rex. And, and we've oh, heard you're, you're, you're we've heard now. stories. Sorry. From, <laughs> and the stories that have come to us from. Uh, 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 Mike tells me a story, uh, and he's been on my show a few times, and uh, he's in contact with a particularly uh, metaphysical interdimensional clan of Sasquatch in, in the wilds of Ontario, Canada. And uh, he was talking to one individual and who told him a story that uh, this guy was up in a blind hiding in a tree, and he was hunting, and he looks down, and there's a Sasquatch walking along, and then bright blue flash of light and the Sasquatch is gone, right? So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, and again, I'm, 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 not, I'm not thinking in absolutes here. No, I'm not saying that all hominoids have a metaphysical interdimensional capability, but it seems that some do. And mm -hmm. I, I, w I would believe that, I think that some are more, far more of a flesh and blood variety that may not have this interdimensional capability, yeah. although they may live underground, they may find themselves like a like a cave somewhere. Uh, like, um, and, and I, no way would I, I presume to know all the details of one of the well-known uh, cryptozoologists in the field, Barton Nunnally. But if you're familiar with the story, uh, when he was a kid, you know, these big hairy hominoids were coming out of the woods and harassing him and his family and his neighbors, right? And, uh, you know, the drawings that were made, if memory serves, they didn't look like the typical Sasquatch, if you will. They were some other big, hairy creature, okay. you know, jagged teeth and, you know, more, far more menacing in appearance. Uh, some of the Sasquatch are described as having, you know, a, kind of a human-looking face, whereas the yeah. ones that were depicted, if memory serves, in, in the story, the sketches that I saw, these are scary-looking buggers and uh, definitely yes they follow types. the yeah sure they're types they're almost a variation of species you know um and within that type there's there's other variations um i always yes. equate it to sort of bears in a way you know it's if you looked at a, a polar bear a panda bear you know a grizzly a sloth bear they're all identifiably bears to you yet they're yes. very different to one another and their habits and environments are, are also different as well as their proportions and you know, physical mark, uh, physiological markers. Uh, sometimes and I think that's from the physical aspect. That's that's at least one look at it. There's something else I want to ask you about actually. And I thought I I've never talked to anybody else who's ever heard of this. Another possible cryptozoological phenomena associated with UFOs. And I had a friend growing up, very down to earth guy, very very straightforward. But he's convinced. And he looked into it, apparently, found lots of stories that as a child, and this is in Wales, in the town of Wales, that he had seen a triangular pyramid-shaped UFO 
in the sky. And shortly afterwards, there was a sort of a big back alley at the back of their houses, sort of long garden houses, the back of sleepy little village in Wales somewhere, uh, just outside of Cardiff. And he was convinced that at that point, maybe a few minutes after the UFO sighting, he'd seen two life-size, real life-size dinosaurs walk past his back gate. One was a stegosaur, closely followed by something that looked like a, a carnivore of some kind, like a T-Rex, but not as big in his mind as what a T-Rex would be, still very large. And they sort of hit the fence and poked their head into the back gate and, and walked on. And he, he swore, swore to the very, you know, to the very day that he told the story. You know, I, I don't believe what I saw, but I saw what I saw. And he'd looked into these other sightings. And apparently there'd been a whole, in the 1970s and 80s at least, rash of these strange, unidentified flying pyramids or objects of different shapes and sizes, followed by dinosaurian uh, visitations. Have you ever heard of them? Well, I don't know if it was you that told me the story or another investigator, but or I read it from somewhere. Because, uh-huh. I mean, I've read Ivan Sanderson's books going way back when. Uh, and there was a story. This happened in, in country America somewhere. I can't remember what state, Tennessee, someplace. But there were some eyewitnesses on the ground that saw a ufo fly by and then right on the heels of this ufo flying by suddenly these large unidentified birds were seen as if there was like a definite causal connection Mm -hmm. between the craft transiting through the area and then suddenly these big thunderbird type Mm. Uh, anomalous birds are flying around. Uh, Very strange. Yeah, and, and you know the eyewitness felt that it was just a curiosity that one followed right on the heels of the yeah. other, as if if he, if they didn't know any better, the craft and the, whoever the occupants were had like dropped off this thing, right? Uh, so. Mm. We have similar stories, not so much with a UFO component in in Sedona, Arizona, which a lot of the locals, a lot of the Native Americans, I tend to fall into this camp too, that not only is there a 3D large underground base there, and not just a military base, but there seems to be an alien base there as well. But you often hear people talk about vortexes there, these energy centers, uh, some well-known places that have become tourist destinations within that five canyons area point being is that there seems to be some kind of whether it's interdimensional some temporal time slippage if you if you will mm. where someone could just be walking along a wash walking along a dry creek bed walking along a trail in the canyons and suddenly crossing their path is a, is a like a brontosaurus wow. or some large dinosaur right uh, and it's there. It seems to be in physical 3D and just like walking by, minding its own business, and then it, it disappears. So whether and, like it materializes or, or disappears from sight, uh, just like disappears out of sight. It's like one oh. moment it's there, and the next it's gone, kind of thing. Oh. Uh, personal friends of mine have seen what appeared to have been a pteranodon, and mm. we've had reports of these. Uh, I've heard reports of these in the high desert of Southern California, yeah. the Ville Barco area. People have seen large winged pterosaurs. Reports right? in the UK as Cretace- well. Yeah. Yes, Cretaceous era type flying reptiles. And uh, my friends in South Carolina <laughs> were sitting in their yard. Uh, you know, they have a fire pit there and they're just relaxing and they just saw this big pteranodon just fly over their head right uh, and maybe because maybe it harkens back to what the uh, native americans and other first world uh, elder types have said that some of these cryptids seem to know where the doorways are between worlds they seem to know uh-huh. it, it just as a dog can see things and a cat can uh-huh. perceive things that we can't 
hear things that we can't. Maybe it's an innate ability of some, at least some of these cryptids to be able to identify, know where these uh, portal entries are, for lack of a better term. Okay. Uh, it does seem that what's interesting about it is getting back to the hairy hominoid and, and more dogmanish aspects to it. Yes, some of them do seem to manifest metaphysical interdimensional capabilities, but they're still flesh and blood insofar as they can be, like Sasquatch can be seen running off with a deer and then bright flash of light, it's gone. Mm. So even though it still has that capability, it still needs to eat flesh mm. and blood, uh, you know, prey. So, I mean, there's a lot of, um, but that's an there's interesting a fudge aspect. factor at work. Mm, yeah, there's a fudge factor aspect. at work, which we, we quite haven't, really haven't quite figured out yet. You know, it's it's a strange, it's a wonderful general. I wanted to, to talk to you again about the whole thing for a while because that's the bit I don't get into because I'm, I'm, I'm my interest is I'm out there looking for animals essentially and hoping to find animals like uh, just as in the same way as somebody was looking for the okapi and they found it, you know, or or the gorilla or the the giant squid, the most you know one of the most recently uh, proven you know, things or, or things to be filmed in its own environment that was never seen before. That's where I am. But there's also this other aspect that always creeps in. And I think uh, philosophically, um, there are many, many arms, you know, there are many branches to this to this genre, which have to be acknowledged because there are things that I can't explain when I'm doing my research and bits and pieces that people tell me. And I, I like to look at the psychological aspects as well. Just quickly before we go, I thought I'd just get your opinion on this. Now, you know, there's a big, um, I suppose, uh, evangelical Christian component in the United States, and within that component, and I'm I'm a Christian myself. I'm a Christian married to a Jew actually, which is you know, that's our strange mix. And I I did I did theology as my my degree and all all this stuff. And I um, I'm religious, but my research into this area isn't from a re- religious point of view. Which is, I'm just just curious. But in that evangelical Christian component, there's this big Nephilim sort of concept yes. whereas you know those who from heaven to earth came and had um angels essentially who had uh, relations with the human women and bore these mighty men of renown now <clears throat> knowing some of the hebrew i know that the evangelicals often uh purport to say that the the offspring that these nephilim had were giants well the people would actually doesn't say giants it says they were sort of they were Nephilim, or they were mighty men. Never says anything about their size, because that's a different word. But the King James Version says giants. That's a misinterpretation. So I'm always sort of battling against, in the Sasquatch era, this evangelical, faulty theology, in my opinion, uh, as perspective of that's, that's the Sasquatch or these Nephilim-like beings. What's, from your community, from your perspective, what's the, the general pervading paradigm philosophy or theory about Sasquatch in that angels and demons kind of uh, uh, perspective from the Nephilim well, point of view? there seems to be, and uh, I'm not making a value judgment uh, upon this particular perspective, but there seems to be uh, a demographic within the Christian evangelical uh, society that holds that anything of a non-human nature, including Sasquatch mm. is of necessity uh, of the Antichrist, of the necessity descended from Nephilim. Now, what's interesting, even though they're, they're kind of, from some would regard perhaps as a you know myopic, narrow-minded perspective, there may be an element of truth there because mm. it's quite possible at least some of these Sasquatch were brought here. Some of them seem to have an, uh, uh, like a enmeshment if you will with the ufo et phenomenon so they're actually right on the money when they say that oh these off-worlders they're all fallen angels they're all demons mm-hmm. right from their perspective and so they tend to lump sasquatch in to that uh you know umbrella little knowing you know of all, all the eyewitness accounts of of hairy hominoids in close proximity to landing craft or even aliens right 
So they may not know all the details and all the nuances, but their knee-jerk reaction is, oh, it's of yeah. the devil, it's of the Antichrist, it's Nephilim, they're all yeah. fallen angels, including the hairy hominoids. Yeah. And I, I don't really, you know, um, and, and again, it comes down to, uh, you know, there are different types of Sasquatch, like the, the Native Americans in uh, the Sierra Nevada mountain range of California, they say, oh, you don't want to mess with these these Sasquatch and the reports I've heard, and they're quite I've wild. They throw big boulders yeah, at you, yeah. um, and others. They're, uh, you know, they're they're not they're not that aggressive. Then we have the whole missing four one one aspect mm. to it, and I do believe at some level reptilians, certainly reptilians, but at some level, some some of the Sasquatch may be involved uh, at some level. But th this is a, a dimension of predation. Uh, down to the microbial level, things are pr yeah. preying upon other things. So yeah, uh, that's just the, the way. It is. I don't know if I answered your question, but I, no, I you think you did. You did. The, and the I evangelicals think... tend to have this kind of myopic view that they're all of the Antichrist and they're all all Nephilim. Well, I, I think a lot of it is interpretation, <clears throat> and um, and the King James Version, which is a great interpretation of the Bible, actually, but it's not perfect. And there are, you know, it was the first translation into English, for example. So it's not perfect. There are some elements of that um, you know, being married to a Hebrew speaker and, not, and knowing the Hebrew myself, I could say, oh, well, actually, it doesn't say that in the original Hebrew. That's clear to me. Some, it says that they were, they were the, the offspring of Nephilim, not that they, or that they were mighty in, in nature, even in strength, but not in, in size. That's Anak, Anakim, you know, that, that's giant. So that's, you know, that's an interesting thing. Not to say that there haven't been giant people in the past. They certainly have. We we have one on record. We have Robert Wadlow, who is an inch shy of the, the height of Goliath. You know, so that's you know that's plausible. That's plausible enough. Um, it's yeah, just an interesting the, the, the thing the to me. Recent past he had. The, oh, I was just going to say in the recent past there was a story of the Kandahar giant uh, in yes. Afghanistan, right? So it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, you know, again, the lore throughout the world. There was a point in time when apparently normal people warred against these giants, and that yeah. that theme seems to be consistent around the world. So, uh, and of I course, the story yeah. of the Smithsonian hiding all these huge skeletons and all that stuff, which I wouldn't doubt for one second. No, I mean, I I I think um, when it comes to uh, you know pervading paradigm institutions, hiding things that even not destroy the narrative, but just disrupt what they've come up with. You know, people's thesis, people's PhDs were often, look at the Piltdown Man. You know, how many PhDs were based upon that? And it was such a fake. Yes. And yet, in some museums, yes. you'll still find it. You'll still find the Piltdown Man right there in those museums, um, unabashedly, however many decades later. So, it's, it, you know, those things are understandable in, in a way. I definitely believe there were, because communities were normally insular, and so breeding was close, at least within the village or within the you know the small uh, settlement. Uh, I mean, look at pygmies, for instance. We don't doubt that there are pygmies. If there are people three to four feet tall, as a nation, as a people, then in nations of people that could have been eight to nine feet tall in the past aren't really out of the realms of possibility. You know, we have that capacity as humans to, to attain those sizes. Yeah. Um, as to whether yeah, that's because there's been some Nephilim sort of intermixing, that's where I'm, I'm kind of caught, you know, and I think Christians especially, um, we're so multi-denominational, there's so many off-ramps in that um, in that religion where we start to uncomfortably shove philosophies into our belief and shove it into the text to try to make it fit, and it's often not, not that applicable, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> As an evangelical, by the way. <laughs> I'll save it for another time, but uh, I, I did encounter one of the little hairy people here in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife and I were coming back from Sydney. Uh, we had dinner and, and saw a movie there, and uh, we got lost. <laughs> Typical story. Found ourselves going up a, a remote um, single-lane road up into the mountains, couldn't even turn around. It wasn't even a shoulder. I mean, the brush came right up to the side, either side of the car, and we're creeping along, at, you know, a few kilometers an hour, and right in front of our our car, this small, thin, 
hairy being, not really hairy, hairy, but you can see that it had a coat of fur or hair with its arms extended, kind of like an X pattern. It sidestepped in front of us. And yeah. uh, my wife screamed, I screamed. Uh, and then, um, you know, a few days later, I, I asked her, um, you know, when we were up in the mountains and we got lost and we both screamed, I'll tell you what I saw. And I told her I saw this little guy kind of sidestep from left to right in front of us. And she said, yeah, I saw the same thing. Uh, but the thing about it was at the time, I didn't want her to elaborate and confirm and validate my sighting. <laughs> I just wanted to go. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, point being, is, I don't think that was a, a baby or a juvenile yaoi. No. I think I think it was one of the small, slight, diminutive. Yeah, I don't know what the, the, they have a long name in, yeah. in the local, you know, native tongue, but I, I would never be able to pronounce it. But 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 it's been delightful talking to you again, Andy. Uh, yes, thank you. Let's thank catch you so up much. some other time. And absolutely, absolutely. Uh, um, I'll uh, for anybody listening, I'll put all of the links to James's material in uh, in the description. You can find his pages and, and find out how to get involved and listen and support there. James Bartley, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. You have yeah. a good one. Take care.